Trade Talk Live, exploring human, digital, and social transformations. Welcome to Straight Talk Live. I am Rick Snyder, one of your co-hosts, and thrilled to bring you this episode today. Um, to give you a little background on Straight Talk Live, if you're joining us for the first time, we are a nonprofit, and we're really focused on this relationship around human transformation, digital transformation, and social impact. And really all this came from the whole COVID situation where Af and I were in our bunkers in San Diego and London and not satisfied by the conversations that were happening in the world and the media news cycles and really hungering for what are the things we need to be discussing, the topics we need to be talking about, getting underneath that and in order to <clears throat> really look at how we need to reset our relationships to the earth, to ourselves, to each other, to our businesses, to our families, to our communities. And that really was the inception and inspiration for this show. And so I'm the CEO of Invisible Edge, author of Decisive Intuition, and uh, really excited to also introduce my partner in crime, Af Maholtra. Af. Hey, thank you, Rick. Again, welcome audiences from all over the world. It's a real pleasure to have you on the show again. Once again, I always say I'm very excited. I'm even more excited today because we have a fantastic thought leader, I guess a philosopher, historian, economist, um, a climate uh, commentator, all in one, in fact, with Charles Eisenstein. So I'm um, terribly excited today. I'm the co-creator of Straight Talks Up Live, as you know, and also the co-founder of Growth Enabler, an AI uh, disruptor and marketplace that banks are relying on today to uh, change their game and change their trajectory. So let's crack on and Rick, over to you. Okay, without further ado, I'm gonna introduce to you Charles Eisenstein. He's a speaker, a writer, and he's focusing on the themes of human culture and identity. Um, he's the author of several books, most recently, Sacred Economics, and The More Beautiful World Our, Heart Knows, Our Hearts Know is Possible, and his newest book, Climate, A New Story. Um, and he's, if you've been paying attention in the cultural memes around uh, the coronavirus and conspiracies, he's got a couple amazing essays um, called The Coronation and the Conspiracy Myth that came out in the last few months. And I just want to say before I formally bring you on, Charles, is just we live in a world that's polarized right now, and it's either the mainstream narrative or the conspiracy narrative. And for me, I've been hungering to find more and more voices that are integrating, that are not polarizing that are bringing together. And for me, Charles, you have one of those voices that helps bring some sanity to an often crazy making uh, experience. So thank you, Charles, welcome to Straight Talk Live. Well, thank you, Rick. I appreciate that, that uh, introduction and that you think I'm sane. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll find out in the next 60 minutes if that's actually accurate, but that will be fun. Okay, so let's dive right in. And I really, I've been, I think a friend of mine introduced me to your work about five years ago and have been following a lot of your threads and just I love where you put your attention. So that's where I want to start this episode. What really has your attention right now, given the state of the world? Last time we spoke five weeks ago, there was the whole COVID situation that was hot, and then civil unrest ever since then. It's even a different world since we last spoke. So I'd love to really get a, a sense of your pulse right now on what really has your attention at this stage. Yeah, so... Um those things have my attention, but underneath those, uh, something that you just said uh, in your introduction that you, you, you thought that something's being left out of the conversation. This isn't the conversation we mm. should be having. Uh, I think that in both of these issues, COVID-19 and uh, civil unrest, uh, racial justice, uh, you know, we're seeing a a incredible, intense polarization and that you can even call information warfare or narrative warfare, where it's not only like it was maybe uh, 10 or 20 or 30 years ago, where, where the two sides disagree about the interpretation of the facts, but it's that they disagree on the facts themselves and they have <clears throat> their own separate sources of facts and their own their own way to obtain facts. So that's almost like not, there's not even a conversation that can be had. It's as if reality is splintering into multiple shards and you get lost in each one of these shards. It's like a prism that filters out certain information 
and brings in other information and it's like you're in this, this separate reality. So what I've been really, so this is what I've been, that's, this has been on my mind a lot and what to do about it and how to engage these debates without validating the debate itself. Like anytime you engage in a debate, mm. you're saying, yeah, I agree, this is what we should be talking about. The problem is that these debates obscure what um, we should really be talking about, in my opinion. Uh, the underlying causes of these, of, of say, racial injustice, of police mm -hmm. brutality, uh, of uh, the health crisis, the ecological crisis, the financial mm -hmm. crisis, all of these things are rooted in unconscious conditions that I think we really need to start talking about. Uh, I start recognizing. So that's that's a little bit of what I've been thinking about. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and, and especially when it comes to race relations and, and justice. Um, the template of writing certain people off is actually the template of racism. Hmm. It, to dehumanize somebody. And that's what we're seeing in these ferocious debates where the explanation for why the other side doesn't agree with us is that they are some version of horrible. They are ignorant, they are malicious, they, mm. you know, the, the, the dehumanization that you see in comments sections is intense. Mm. And I, I, don't, I don't, anyway, I could go on and on, but maybe I'll let you uh, comment or something. Yeah, I think, um, I think you're spot on in my intuitive experience too and what's happening. And let's, let's get to what you just said a moment ago also is what are some of those underlying con conditions that we're not talking about? What are some of those questions we're not asking that get underneath um, some of the uh, flare-ups that we're seeing socially, politically, uh, racially, all the things that are happening right now? What, what are you sensing are some of those underground um, collaborators? Okay, well, so when it comes to police violence, say to take, take that as one, one topic, um, imagine you become a police officer. You've spent in your entire childhood watching films, like every depiction of police work and crime that you've seen uh, in the mass media, in entertainment, in movies, uh, in comic books, is basically that crime is caused by criminals. Criminals are criminals because they're bad. Mm. Like there's no explanation really, or, or, or at most a very cartoonish explanation for why uh, the Joker or Lex Luthor or the Penguin or uh, what was his name? Uh, Thanos, you know, or whoever it is, is bad. <laughs> like they're just bad, you know? And, and so there you are out in the streets conditioned to be looking for bad people. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a racist element here because very often the, the portrayal of bad people is somebody who's of a different race. Plus, uh, you might be more afraid of somebody in a different, of a different race. And add to that um, a system where you are rewarded for arrests, mm -hmm. uh, where you have this, this mentality of deterrence and punishment as a code for justice like can we even have some conception of justice that doesn't equate to punishment hmm. so you you're, you're in that totality of circumstances and then you have a gun and you're afraid like you know you've seen how bad these bad people are i think that police violence is inevitable given those conditions and that means that no amount of diversity training or examining your privilege is really going to change those those circumstances. And then not to mention what is the, like, yeah, maybe there are a lot of, um, there is a lot of crime in, um, it's actually more a matter of class than race, mm -hmm. uh, to be honest. Um, but yeah, there are higher rates of crime in poor urban ghettos um, and in, in poor, other poor communities. Well, is that because there's a higher concentration of bad people there? Mm. Or is it because of 
generational trauma that has been passed down through even through the DNA. Mm. I mean, there, there's mm-hmm. research now that shows that trauma can be passed through the DNA, not to mention the cultural oh. circumstances, not to mention the addiction, yeah. not to mention the, the family legacy. And then there's the poverty. And then there's the fact that families have been destroyed through incarceration. And then there's mm. the fact that the only male role models and the only business opportunities and way to advance yourself is in the illegal drug trade. Mm-hmm. Okay. Like, are we talking about any of that? Mm-hmm. Or is it about how racist individual cops are or how racist mm-hmm. police are in general? So, and I'm not saying that they aren't or that there's not a problem there, but it's like, what gets left out of the conversation when we define uh, an issue that is easily, and which issues do we define? It's the ones that lend themselves easily to us versus them thinking. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're, we're trapped in this prison of this conceptual prison of seeing the world in terms of us versus them. And there's a deeper root of that as well, which I could talk about, mm. but I'll just leave it there for now. Um, so can I, uh, sorry, Charles, I think you touched on a very important point and it's a thread from past episodes that we've been running and future episodes that we're going to be running um, around, um, you know, inclusion. And um, in fact, one of the sessions we're doing in the future is to try and ascertain whether diversity is dead and whether it's all a fallacy, you know, in large organizations. Uh, and there's, some, there's so many threads that we can pull from here, but I want to go back to what you just said a second ago and get your opinion and views on this. So if you think about what's going on in the world right now, so the questions we forgot to ask and the assumptions that we all make and the perceptions that we all carry, and when we say that's good and that's bad, Oh, it's terrible that people are protesting. Surely they should have found a better time to do this. Uh, We're dealing with Corona right now. Oh my God, how insensitive, Uh, whatever it may be. And, you know, let's imagine we're right in the middle of this. Uh, I had the pleasure of just recently getting exposed to this, um, you know, 12 or 13 page letter that Martin Luther King wrote in Birmingham jail, 1963. And if you hadn't told me it was him writing it and you gave it to me and you said, hey, listen, have a read of this. I really would have thought someone wrote it in 2020. Uh, that's, that's 57 years ago. That's how behind the curve we are. That's when you realize actually the sort of change that you thought has happened and the progress that we've made um, is real. You start to realize how we're stuck in a bit of a time warp because this divide or bipolarity between people continues to exist. So my, my kind of thought or the question to you really is, um, the, back to the questions we forgot to ask, now, these protests are going on, and um, it's been good in, in a certain way because it's, it's raising the topic again, and people are having these discussions. Um, you know, some people are divided. In the UK and London, where we live and where I live, there were riots, or there were protests that turned into riots uh, on both sides. And um, there's a school of thought that says, actually, it's better to be bipolar. At least you have an opportunity to then... Um, argue or discuss your points or be clear about the fact that you stand on one side and the other stands on the uh, the other. Uh, the, you know, Martin Luther King basically said the problem is with the people in the middle. The problem is with the people in the middle who are uh, neutral or undecided and actually aren't fighting any of the uh, causes. And so what is your, what is, think, go, go out five years, what is your view on race relations and um, how important do you think diversity and inclusion and whatever terminology we want to right. use, or sometimes I hate using those terms because they get so trite and boring, but whatever okay. the term may be, some sort of balance in society, what, where is it going? What, what are you All seeing right. from historic analysis and future analysis? Okay, so <laughs> it's fun for me to talk about this uh, because, again, we're in such a polarized moment that anything that someone says is immediately first run through the filter of, okay, which side are they on? Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. Is it okay to even listen to this person, to give them a platform, to to give them a listening? So it's, that's a little fun for me to try to say things that are confusing in a sense, in the sense that they don't fit into one or another narrative because um, as far as it's the people in the middle, that are the problem, uh, consider this scenario. Say that you are living in a horrible concentration camp and the people running the concentration camp decide to have an election, finally. Uh, You get to choose the camp mascot. 
Mm-hmm. In fact, South Park had an episode about this where they were choosing the school mascot and one side nominated a giant douche and the other side nominated a turd sandwich. <laughs> and they had like this big, you know, fight about it. It's like, okay, when you devote all of your energy to that question, mm-hmm. you're not talking about stopping the concentration camp. You know, you're not talking about liberation. You're talking about something that, um, because of its relative triviality, uh, enables the status quo to continue because it's a distraction. Mm-hmm. It, it, and it's only at most a superficial level of change. So as far as, so yeah, I can apply that to diversity and inclusion. The goal of, to, to, to say that the goal of the civil rights movement or the goal of feminism or the goal of the gay rights movement is only inclusion and diversity neuters the revolutionary potential of these movements. It's not to say, oh, in the, let, let's allow black people and women and gay people, et cetera, et cetera, uh, to join the boardroom and help administer the world destroying exploiting machine. Mm. that's mm. not you know let's let's elevate women to positions in the patriarchy right that lays waste to the world mm. so it's not so i i don't think that that what we're really seeking is inclusion um as the highest goal it's more that it's like it's actually you know the the um marginalized knocking at the door it's not oh let's let them in and include them in the world destroying machine it's let's come out to play with them and engage the world in a different way a Mm. world that has been preserved by the marginalized and especially by the indigenous who are the most Mm. marginalized Mm. maybe Mm. they know something that we don't so if like i've had opportunities to be on there, there was one or two times where I was invited to be on a panel or something or part of some program and it's all white males, like mm-hmm. not even any women, you know? And I, there was one time where I was like, you know, I really don't want to be in this panel because like, do you need another white male on this panel? Mm-hmm. There was like eight of us, you know, uh, all these big shots, um, except me. <laughs> and then like the organizers just scurried into these apologetics, you know, oh my God, we didn't notice, Charlie, thank you for pointing this out, et cetera, et cetera. Um, We'll do something about it. I'm like, you don't understand. The reason that I don't want to be on an all white male panel isn't because of equity and inclusion and diversity. It's because all white male panels tend to suck. And if you broaden that, extend that to our entire society, it kind of sucks. It's not working. It's not working on in ecological terms. It's not working in psychological or social terms. This whole hierarchy of privilege that says it's working for the 1% takes for granted the values of the 1%, takes for granted the dominant values of this civilization, mm. which upholds as the pinnacle of success a, you know, a 5,000 square foot house with Mm -hmm. a big yard and you order everything through your computer and it comes to your house and you have plenty of money. And like, really, is that Mm -hmm. where you find the people on this earth who radiate joy and fulfillment? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you find them in Greenwich, Connecticut? Do you find them in, in the city of London? Do you find, no, you don't find them there. You find them in a Caro village in Peru. You find them in a traditional village in, in rural India or uh, among the um, Hadza of, of where the Tanzania, like that, that's where you find actual happy people. Mm. And that means that for us to have authentic, deep change, radical change that goes to the root we have to, yeah, open the door and step out and not to say that, well, we are system. The system that we've operated is the best. 
So out of the goodness of our hearts, we're going to let everybody else in. Now, if you take that for granted, the system for granted, then yeah, diversity and inclusion um, to, you know, let, to share the pie, mm -hmm. that is obvious. And, and that might be even a step, but the, 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 the critique, like Martin Luther King, he was not just about giving black people an equal role in capitalism because he understood that capitalism requires some groups to be exploited. Mm -hmm. And if it's not black people, it's going to be somebody else. You have to have an underclass for mm. capitalism as we know it. So I, I, this is a whole other conversation. Like what is capitalism and how does it change when capital changes? Because what is capital? It is agreements about money and property. It, it is agreements. So that's a whole other thing. But for now, let me just say capitalism as we know it. It's Martin Luther King understood that it requires an exploiting and an exploited class. And he would not have endorsed the idea that, that to flip the roles of the exploited and the exploiter is any kind of solution. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I really like this theme here, Charles, if I can just jump in here that uh, if I were to summarize in one way is it's not just about including more people to eat the pie, but we need to change the meal to a much more healthy meal for all. And I want to tie this to something that you shared before in one of our talks that we had a few weeks ago. Um, we were speaking to the CEO, the former COO of a major uh, insurance firm yesterday, and he had a brilliant idea around one of the problems is that how board level is incentivized in companies where they're incentivized to have their own short-term gains. And because of that, they're so, because they're so heavily incentivized, they don't care. They don't give a shit about the masses, about this, the key stakeholders when it really comes down to it. They don't, they are not vested in that conversation. Um, so he was talking about that and, re and really looking at different models of incentivization. So I wanted to tie that with you to one of the, your favorite phrases that I like from you, uh, that you bring is around the cult of quantity. And this, this topic around the cult of quantity. Can you get into that a little bit around how, what is the cult of quantity and how the heck do we break that? Oh boy. Okay. <laughs> that's, Welcome to Straight Talk Live, Charles. Yeah, that's a huge topic. <laughs> Uh, and, and it's related to the, to the previous theme of what gets left out and who gets left out. Right? Yeah. And you reduce a problem to a certain formulization. For, mm -hmm. um, so the problem with, so, so basically for something to be scientific, you have to base it on data. You have to base, this on, base it on the analysis of quantities. That's what makes, in fact, that's what science is. Science is the study of the quantifiable. If it's not quantifiable, if it's not measurable, then it's not within the realm of science. Hmm. So because science is the paramount religion of our society, and that's another conversation, why do I call it a religion? Um, doesn't mean it's bad or powerless. Mm -hmm. um, but because it is the dominant religion, the standard of legitimacy in our society uh, we tend to make decisions by the numbers, uh, like show me the data, give me a reason, uh, cost-benefit analysis. Uh, we, this is, we borrow this, of course, from financial accounting uh, and the uh, theory of the firm and economics, that, you know, that, and the theory of the individual, that we're all seeking to maximize our self-interest and that that self-interest can be measured in dollars. So one problem with operating that way is that maybe we don't include everything in our quantities. Second problem, maybe some things we can't include in our quantities, like we can't measure it. So mm -hmm. one is we don't bother to because we think it's not important. Second is we, we can't. Third is that there are, maybe there are things in this world that are fundamentally qualitative that are immeasurable. Hmm. So as for the first, like let's again look at the race conversation. As all of this protesting is going on, there are tens of millions of people on earth, mostly black and brown, who are starving to death right now. 
as a result of lockdown. There were millions before lockdown. <laughs> now there are tens of millions. Mm -hmm. uh, and it could be by the end of this year, hundreds of millions, according to the UN. I'm not seeing people so indignant that they are like, this has to stop. We are going to be out in the streets until it stops. Mm -hmm. Society as we know it cannot go on. This is intolerable because they are not part of the numbers. They're not part of the COVID-19 epidemiological numbers upon which policy is made. And they're not part of the police brutality numbers. They're just, mm -hmm. they're, they're just not in the conversation of race. Mm -hmm. And in fact, these days, Democrats are as hawkish, if not more hawkish, when it comes to the foreign policies and the neoliberal economic policies that bankrupt and impoverish the rest of the world. So anyway, so that's an example of what we don't measure. Mm -hmm. and, then, and then there are, of course, the things that, as I was saying, are not measurable. Like, can you actually uh, convert life to money or the good to money? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Can you put a price on everything? And if you can't, then any corporate or government policy that is based on maximizing GDP, maximizing revenue, or maximizing any proxy for the good, even if it's the triple bottom line, you know, even if it's uh, GPI uh, or gross national happiness or something like that, there's going to be things that are left out. And this, in my mind, calls us not to abandon that way of making decisions, but to come out and play with mm -hmm. other ways of knowing other ways of, choose, of choosing, which actually we already do. I mean, mm. the idea that we actually make decisions by the numbers is largely a fiction. Mm -hmm. A friend of mine used to work for an investment bank in the uh, mergers and acquisitions department. And there was an acquisition going to happen. So his boss is like, okay, I need you to run the numbers, you know, and value this company and so on and so forth. And so he comes up, you know, pulls an all-nighter, comes to his boss with the, with the, paper, you know, with the, with the data. And his boss is like, no, 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 that's not right. Um, that's not valuable enough. So he just goes in and changes some numbers. Like we use the numbers and the logic and the mm -hmm. reasons to justify and rationalize mm -hmm. what we actually wanted to do anyway. Right. Yes, that's right. right. And in business too, you have a CEO mm -hmm. who's got a gut instinct. He's got a, yeah. a, a, an impulse. This is what we should do. And maybe his middle management, you know, his team, they're going to be skeptical. Maybe there's a skeptical part of himself that mirrors those people. So he has to somehow come up with some numbers to assuage the inner and outer bean counters that this is okay. Mm. But is that really where the decision is coming from? Mm. And this is not to say that the financials are irrelevant. They're just part of the information stream that feeds the intuition. Exactly. And this is even when they've interviewed judges in the courts of law, and of course, they're trying to be as objective as possible, ideally, when they're interviewed, it often says it often comes down to a intuition about what they feel based on all the data points, um, even in the court of law, right? And so that's just the human nature. You know, I think they say 95% of how we get information is emotional and energetic first, and then we start to compute what that means to us mentally. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So do you think, going back to this, this concept, I remember the last call you talked about another thing that stayed with me, uh, which was, again, related to, I think you called this the cult of, what was, how did you? What the you cult of quantity. The cult of quantity. And I think when we're talking about the cult of quantity, there was another piece, which was the tyranny of time or the tyranny of the clock that we talked about. And I think if you look at the new economic models, the new social models, the new geopolitical um, with hope, I mean, a glass half full approach would be maybe geopolitics will start to look a little bit better. I'm hoping, uh, you know, the next five or 10 years, who knows, maybe we're moving away for glo from globalism, internationalism, that could be good for some, bad for others. Time will tell. What is, what is your view on, um, and this is an important one because you were talking about impoverished people. We're talking about people who are hungry. You're talking about those numbers going from tens of millions to hundreds of millions. A lot of people who, who are uh, not in highly skilled roles, they're not the, the big coders and the AI developers or the investment bankers, uh, frankly. And that's the majority of the, the population of the world. You know, these are the people who are 
on the other end of, of the spectrum around capitalism. They're, they're feeding, they're the, the, the grassroots workers. Many of these people might be unemployed in the future and they're thinking about roles and skills and things like that. But I think, um, just talk to us a little bit about your view on just to educate the audience and let them think about things in a slightly different way, I guess. We've come from the post-industrial revolution era where we've been so fixated on, on the clock, you know, nine to five, um, whatever, nine to six, constantly looking at the watch. You should take you 30 minutes to do this. Activity-based management, da-da-da-da, clocking in, clocking out, and so on and so forth. And, and it continues, by the way. It's still happening, not just in, in, in Western economies, but also in Eastern de developing economies. So tell us a little bit about what you think is going to happen then. So are we going to still be burdened by the, the tyranny of the clock? Do you think there's a revolution coming? Do you think people are going to say, no, enough of this? One protest will lead to another thousand? Um, what's, where, where are you putting your money? All right. So this, so before I get into that very juicy yeah. topic, I want to say that, that I'll, I'll offer a meta comment, which is what do I see coming? What's going to happen? There's a certain powerlessness and loss of agency in that question. Because in fact, the future is ours to create. It's not going to be coming unless we make it come, unless we acquiesce to it, unless mm -hmm. we claim it or claim some different future. That, and, and right now we have a special opportunity to do that because of the accelerating breakdown of normal. Mm -hmm. So choices that we're unconscious are becoming conscious right now. For example, quarantine and lockdown, is that permanent? Are we gonna have a, a world of isolation risk minimization uh, and the loss of sociality? Or are we gonna reclaim those things? Reclaim mm -hmm. gatherings mm -hmm. and group hugs and festivals and big weddings mm -hmm. um, and maybe not put safety on the altar as our highest value. Yeah. So, okay, so to claim, what future are we gonna claim? So um, the clock, I may have mentioned in our earlier conversation is the fundamental invention of the industrial revolution, mm. more fundamental than the steam engine, more important than petroleum um, or electricity. It is, you, you, you have to have coordination of time in order for factory processes to work. Mm -hmm. And in the post-industrial era, if we are actually in the post-industrial era, um, we could, I mean, computers that run on clock too. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, and require a very precise coordination of processes. So I'm not really sure if we are actually past the industrial era, but certainly as you're saying, uh, fewer and fewer people are required to produce the same amount of stuff. This is, a, this is the classic crisis of capitalism, actually. Mm. When, when a man is replaced by a machine, uh, which can do the work of a thousand men, then mm -hmm. either you have 999 people unemployed or there is a different solution. You consume a thousand times more. That has been actually the solution of capitalism for several hundred years to avert the crisis of unemployment and um, falling profits and the whole Marxian crisis. You have to continually expand consumption. That's called economic growth. And when your own market gets saturated, then you, through colonialism, you find new markets mm. to keep the economy growing. And I, economic ideology says that we are all becoming better and better off because we're getting more and more goods and services. We're becoming more and more specialized. They're being produced more and more efficiently. And if it's called a good, that means it must be good. Uh, you wouldn't buy it if it weren't good. So you wouldn't sacrifice your utility to get this other thing unless it was even better. So there's mm. a whole economic ideology that is, again, comes down to the cult of quantity, mm. that the good is something that can be denominated in, in dollars and cents. Uh, but the ideology says things are getting better and better. This is what progress is. And now, because of ecological limits, because of social limits, because of political limits, because of medical limits, we seem to be again facing a crisis of growth. Really the fundamental economic crisis today is that 
economic growth is slowing down. Consumption is slowing down. So if we are not going to consume more and more, then we're going to have to work less and less. At least work less and less for, the, for commodities and the quantifiable. However, if you believe that there is more to life than quantity, then maybe there is a value in inefficiently growing food in your garden rather than eating vegetables from gigantic monocrop farms or hydroponics, robotified hydroponics factories. Because mm. maybe there's something else in those vegetables that you grew in your own garden or that your neighbor grew. Maybe there's some kind of uh, energy that is infused into those vegetables from the land that you walk with, with your own feet. Mm -hmm. There's a relationship there. This most indigenous people believe mm -hmm. and still believe something like this, that food is, is an, to eat something is an intimate act. Mm -hmm. You're bringing all of the solar and, and geological vibrations into your body mm. and that you can't be fully nourished by factory farmed food grown a thousand miles away. Mm. This is not something that science can measure. I, I'm not going to say, oh, and there's a study that proves this. <laughs> Although there may be studies that demonstrate positive effects of locally grown food. Mm. But what I'm saying is that this, this is just an example of something mm. that might be outside of our systems of quantification that cannot be captured by economic growth and that can motivate a different kind of labor or, or provide a different motivation for our labor and for our creativity, maybe and, and a different conception of progress. Progress has meant to produce things more efficiently. Mm, correct. The yeah. very concept of efficiency depends on quantification. Mm. Mm -hmm. Efficiency mm. relative to what standard of what unit of account, you know? Mm. So, so if we want to, so I, I can foresee a different future not as an inevitability, but as something we can claim, where we become richer and richer in all of the things that we cannot measure, where every object that we surround ourselves with was made with great care and attention by an artist, mm. uh, where every building is beautiful and perfectly coordinated with its environment, where the loudest sound that you can hear most of the day is children laughing and birds singing. There's another vision of progress and we're seeing indications that that is possible as China, I believe just um, has adopted a policy of returning to the land. Mm. Like maybe this urbanization has gone far enough. Yeah. Um, yeah. In India, many people are returning to the land as well. Mm. Um, they're going back to the village, the migrant laborers, and maybe they're not going to come back. Like maybe village life, even if it is economically inefficient, has a value. Your garden is inefficient. I don't know if you have a garden, but if you calculate how much money you're saving by growing your own food, mm. you're getting paid like 13 cents an hour. You know, <laughs> It's not efficient. It's irrational right. according to economic logic. Mm -hmm. And mm. how do we translate this into business? I mean, you know, I know many of your listeners are entrepreneurs, um, and so this would be another topic we could go into, but, but maybe I'll just stop there uh, with that groundwork. Mm. You know, what that touches into me, for me, Charles, is when you talk about the story of separation um, as one of those really, those under vibes that's under all of this conversation. Um, and this is something that speaks to very deeply to me is how disconnected am I from my food supply chain uh, where I don't have a garden right now. Um, I don't even, I can barely keep a succulent plant alive, to be honest. Um, and so that whole thing around, what does that take for us to get reconnected uh, to ourselves, to the, to our backyards, to, to, to the land, to each other? Um, anything else that you wouldn't want to say about the story of separation and how that is really the crux, the, one of the big questions we're not talking about? Um. I could go into the story of separation. Um, maybe, I'll, maybe I'll get there by speaking to, it doesn't have to be your garden. Um, really it's, even a software engineer can approach his or her work in the spirit of gift, in the spirit of reverence, in the spirit of beauty. Um, anybody can be an artist. To be an artist means that you're not just serving the market. You're not just serving 
the customer. You're not just serving the profit potential, but you're doing it better than you need to for any rational reason. If you look at just what's coming to mind right now is Shaker Furniture. Have you ever seen Shaker Furniture? Never. It's, it's no. the perfect marriage of aesthetics and utility. And these objects, you look at these chairs and they're just vibrating with life. How did they do that? It was through a, a kind of a reverence for the object itself. So you, if you're writing um, an app, here are the specifications, here's what it's supposed to do. And then you have like some idea. It could be an Easter egg, you know, or it could be like some, some really elegant way to do it. And it's gonna take you more time and you're not gonna get paid anymore. And maybe no one will ever even notice. Or at least if they notice, they won't know that it was you. You won't get paid in money, you won't get paid in credit, you won't get paid in anything. But your relationship with that object, that software, that virtual object, becomes one of devotion. It's a devotional relationship. If we, so really underneath all of the, you know, the gardening, the, 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 the healing work, I mean, everything, it comes down to a devotional attitude toward the world rather than an extractive attitude toward the world. And this does get into the story of separation because in, and it's really a mythology that I'm talking about that says that human beings are, that who we are is separate, discrete, separate units, individuals in a world of other competing individuals that is separate from ourselves and that doesn't have the qualities of a self. The world itself is just a bunch of stuff. It's a bunch of generic particles bouncing around math, according to mathematical forces atoms and void upon which we project meaning upon which we um, impose design uh, and exert control and thereby imprint intelligence into a world that has none that's called progress and that is a mythology it, it's a story it's it's other people other cultures didn't believe that they thought the world was bursting with beings, that everything was conscious, that everything was alive, that, that there was purpose outside of human purpose and that we could participate in that purpose. Our institutions and our systems are built on the mythology of separation. So part, so, so devotion, reverence, for that which is outside of ourselves and the spirit of contributing to this larger unfolding of beauty and intelligence and life, that is in a different mythology of, of reunion, of connection, of interdependence, of ecology, of interbeing, of relationality. That is um, the, 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 the act of devotion, the act of the artist, the act of the philanthropist, the giver, those are at home in this new story, this, well, new for civilization, but very ancient, actually, this new and ancient story. And this is what my work is about. It's like, okay, that's a nice philosophy. How do we translate that into systems, into practices? How can we analyze or understand medicine, education, politics, uh, crime, uh, health, et cetera, et cetera, through the, the lens of a transition in our stories. That, that's, that, that's kind of like a base level. But I, I would just really um, on a, on a non-conceptual level, simply call to that part of everybody, anyone listening. I mean, can't you feel the yearning to add to the beauty of the world. <laughs> Why would you do that? The mind says, well, maybe it'll benefit me, but what if it doesn't? Does, is, is it always a good business strategy? A lot of times it is. A lot of times we get surprised. The things that we did out of devotion, out of care, end up helping ourselves anyway. After all, in the new story, 
of interbeing, we're not separate from the world that we are beautifying and enlivening. The world is part of ourselves. But even if you do not get any measurable benefit from creating a business more beautiful, a garden more beautiful, um, a, a, an object more beautiful than it needed to be for any external reason, still you are enriched by that act of creation. And this is a source of joy not easily available to people in a market economy. But we can reclaim it and, and not only reclaim it personally, but also um, work to reclaim it um, collectively as well. And, what, and to build a world on that, to build a politics on that, to build, to build systems on that. Charles, who do you think, who do you think on the same note, think of East and West, so Western civilization and China, India, uh, the Eastern nations, who do you think is more able or has the foundations to be able to uh, realize what you've just articulated? Who's in a better position? Uh, every civilization has a, a, a gift to offer to this process. <clears throat> Every civilization has gone through uh, a journey of separation. The, the, many of the same institutions of oppression, slavery, ecocide arose in every civilization. It's not an accident. It's not just uh, the um, civilization that arose in the Middle East um, and spread to Europe that had patriarchy debt, social class, um, misogyny, slavery, uh, et cetera, et cetera, ecocide. Uh, this, this happened everywhere. It happened in China, it happened in India, North America, South America, everywhere where civilization arose, you had the same phenomena. And, and of course, they developed along different lines. <laughs> Each civilization also preserved some of the ancient knowledge and coded it into its stories, into its wisdom lineages, into its esoteric traditions, um, into its religion. And, and now the time is here for each civilization to offer up its gifts toward the transformation of all civilizations. And a lot of these necessary gifts were held by indigenous people. Um, and many of them now also recognize that the time to offer these gifts to the world is here. So, yeah, it's not that, that China or India is closer to this way than others. I mean, in some ways, you know, if you go into uh, Chinese energetics and medicine or um, Indian um, uh, Ayurveda cultivation <laughs> techniques, well, yeah, you could say Ayurveda too, but I'm really thinking of like the, the spiritual technologies of India. Um, these are treasures to this world uh, and I think are really important. So every culture has its offering in the uh, program of reunion. In the tapestry of humanity. Yeah. I love that. I want to open this up to um, some audience questions. And so those of you listening, please send in your questions right now on whatever channel you're listening from. But we have a couple already that are popping up. So let's bring the audience in on this. So here's, this is from Jonathan. Given social media's structural bias towards furthering the information narrative warfare, what are the forums you see that are working for a different kind of narrative? Uh, you know, I'm not an expert in these things. Um, I do think part of it is, is structural, uh, just you know, the way the algorithms work on Facebook and stuff, that in creating these echo chambers. Um, and maybe uh, some of the new developments in distributed peer-to-peer -peer networks, um, you know, bear some promise in that regard. But, but I think that the... Uh, architecture of the social networks in part is an emanation of our own habits, um, our own psychological habits and our own programming. Uh, to think of the world, for example, in us versus them terms, to think of the 
cause of a bad thing as being bad people, uh, to see improvement in the world as the result of some kind of triumph, some kind of conquest, some kind of domination. Like the basic template of domination long precedes social media. So you could say that just like the money system, social media rests on a deeper psychic foundation. And as that foundation changes, as we embrace new values um, of the values of interbeing, the values of compassion, the values of non-judgment, the understanding that if I were in the totality of your circumstances, I might be doing what you're doing. So let me understand those circumstances. As, as, the, un, as, as the realization that there is a lot more to reality and possibility than, than we have been told, our systems, including social media, will feel more and more out of line with our consciousness. We will feel less and less comfortable there. We'll feel less and less, wow, I don't really vibe with Facebook, you know? And is it because of this? Is it because of the comments? Is it because of the ads? Is it, I'm not sure, but there's a kind of a frequency that I no longer feel at home in. Does that mean that there's a ready-made alternative? I wish. Uh, I'm exploring setting up a mighty network right now. Uh, but you know, like, I really like that a lot of their functionality is kind of corporate, you know, they're sending me marketing messages. I'm like, eh. so I, 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 I'm not sure. I'm exploring high-low as well. It's not quite as robust. You know, I'm not, I, I don't have, oh, here's the, the uh, platform of the new story. But many people are seeking to, to create it and they're exploring it. And I, I think this, that's really important work. I think it's also a generational thing. I think as you were speaking, uh, talking about social media, because the space we play in, if you think about the younger generation, I won't label them, but the younger than me and the younger than us, I guess, you, you've got TikTok and you've got Insta. And it's, it's phenomenal. I, I always thought I was really cool, quite trendy when it came to technology and I operate in technology. I, I'm in AI and so on, but I, I haven't managed to fathom TikTok. I think it's very powerful and it's incredible. But I've been watching some of these videos and it goes back to the, this whole new sort of uh, world that we're trying to create for ourselves, hopefully a better world. And there'll be a realization that maybe there'll be four day weeks. I don't know. Um, fingers crossed. We're talking about it here in the UK, trying to model what New Zealand is doing and so on. Um, but I question for you. I mean, you don't have to answer it, but just your thoughts. When you've got this generation, the younger generation that lives on social media and a different type of social media, it's not an intellectual necessarily a, a discussion around, you know, you comment and I comment and I have this long essay that I write and you write an essay back. It's not that sort of uh, way of existing. Social media now is about my funny video of this 30 second uh, mime that I'm going to do or I don't know, something, something generally fun for them, but that's your identity now. That's the identity of this generation. And it has to be quick and fast and rapid. They don't have time to be pensive and reflect. They just want to move on to the next thing. Um, so if that's, the, if that's the next gen, the next generation that we're relying on, whilst I'm, I'm totally buoyant about that generation because many of them are so tuned into uh, ecology, tuned into this, the, the differences that we have in embracing similarities, they're tuned into climate change. Uh, you know, the Greta Thunberg movement has sort of re-energized them as well and so on and so forth. But um, again, your view on this from the point of view of the, not the millennials, not the Gen X, I mean, whoever, the, the younger population, uh, you know, what's your, what's your, very quickly, what's your take on them and how instrumental do you think they're going to be with um, this new, new reality that we're entering into? Have they forgotten to ask questions as well? or they were never given the opportunity to, to, to ask those questions? In some ways, the next generation is more damaged than my generation. Uh, their attention span is shorter. Um, their, their immersion in uh, artificial images is more complete than it was for me. Uh, their because, and I could go into to how television and video games um, hijack the brain's ability to create images and make people dependent on externally created images uh, and how the, the constant barrage of intense stimuli conditions us to intense stimuli and makes us um, unable to 
even notice subtleties uh, and to hold attention for a long time. Yet, at the same time, these um, obstacles can become a source of strength. Uh, the, the greater the wound, the more powerful the healing. Um, and, uh, you know, this sounds a little new agey, but a lot of amazing beings are being born into this world that, that are perhaps um, becoming strong because of these, because of this environment. And also every curse also bears a blessing. So these, these technologies, these highly fragmented, um, fast-paced, uh, ephemeral ways of expressing ourselves, um, they open up new capacities as well. So I, 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 I would not, I do think that, that it is important to preserve some ways of expressing ourselves that do require sustained attention. I mean, I write long form essays, you know, um, but you know, like a lot of people, a lot of young people read those too, uh, or listened to them. So I'm not sure if it's really as bad as I sometimes think. Uh, yeah, I, sorry, I don't have any profound insights to say. To no, no, I, I think perspective, the perspective is what, yeah. what I was seeking. Courtney Cole says something interesting. I just wanted to read that out, Rick um, and Charles. I think it's, it's nicely framed. Um, she says, it seems that this generation at once wants to change uh, the world and at the same time, I guess, just distract themselves from looking at the reality of it. Um, I can relate to that with, with the young generation that we engage with. Um, thank, thank you for that, for that, Courtney. There was another question, Rick, do you want to? Uh, yeah, um, this is a great question as we're winding down here from Linda who says, Charles, do you have other venues where you're bringing this conversation to more people who want to be in this rich creative growth mindset you've helped us begin to cultivate today? I'd uh, love to hear some of those places that you bring your work. I mean, like I said, I do mostly long form stuff. Uh, so, you know, I have my website and um, with, I have online courses and, you know, I've written books and stuff. Uh, but, you know, what I've been really realizing is that, that you cannot hold a new story by yourself. Mm. I can't hold it by myself. <laughs> right. uh, a mythology is held mm. in community. Mm. And if right. you're too, if you diverge too far from what the people around you are saying and thinking and doing, then not, they're going to pressure you and you're going to feel internal pressure. It's like, like, am I crazy here? Why is nobody else saying this? So um, I'm looking to create an a online community now simply to hold each other mm. in the various dimensions of a new story to remind each other that we're not crazy. So I am creating that. Um, so like, if you want to be part of that, eventually I'll announce that on my newsletter, but I'm still, uh, that'd probably be, you know, maybe a month away. And I'm a little hesitant to get into it because, oh my God, am I going to be spending more time online if I do that? <laughs> so, um, and do I even have to do that when mm -hmm. this, consciousness is arising in so many places mm. but yeah you know I, I do feel there's a need like I, I might be in a program like this and awaken something in somebody or amplify something that was growing in them or give voice to something that they'd been thinking mm -hmm. and people want to to nourish that um and so I, I am looking to create a community to do that so like I don't have to be you know the one holding it um which is beyond my capacity, actually. I, I, I need community too. Amen. And, and that's a big part of what we're doing at Straight Talk Live also. And one thing I want to let the audience know is we're going to be showcasing all of our speakers' bios and information. So Charles, if there's any links to what you're talking about now and you want to give that to us, we're happy to put that on our page for you also so that people can streamline right to what you're doing uh, or, you know, in, the, in this moment. You just have to put my website now because this is going to be, you know, in a month, probably or a few weeks. Okay. Excellent. Yeah. Good. Uh, well, we are winding down and um, you just want to mention your website. How can people find out more about you and your work? It's charleseisenstein.com. 
something org. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You got a 33% chance here. Which one is it? <laughs> I think all of them go to the same place. Okay. Smart man. Yeah. Good. Um, I just want to say what a pleasure and blessing it is having you on here. Uh, my big takeaway in one way, which is really profound is shifting from a, a relationship of extraction to a relationship of devotion and connection. And, and there's so many ways that can play out. And I think that's so important for each of us to find our own version of that in the worlds that we live and a way that's authentic to each of us. Um, but it just feels like that's the direction we need to move uh, to go from the story that's not working to one that actually does. Hmm. Yeah. Well said. Thank you so much for being on here. Off, you have any final words as well? I think you summed it up beautifully. Charles, it's a pleasure to have you on our show. And I think we'd love to have you back um, when the time is right for you and for us to go deeper into um, what's going to happen next and what can we predict or what can we uh, um, pontificate on. Uh, but what a, what, a great, um, what a great set of essays you've framed and um, you know, really pleased to have someone like you who's thinking in this unique and compelling way. And um, let's keep the conversation open and uh, God bless you. And hopefully you continue your good work and we're always here to support you. So thank you for being on the show. Yeah. Thank you, Af. Thank you, Rick. And really quick plug next week, uh, same time, we're going to be exploring is psychological safety the cornerstone for next gen enterprises with two amazing leaders in Hema and Kate who are incredible innovators in their own right. And so that's next week's episode. Charles, thank you again for not just your words, but where you speak from. And thank you for the work you've done. Thanks. Okay. Be all well, everyone. And same time next week, over and out. Straight Talk Live. Bye.